Hey doll. Welcome to the final episode in the Murs Murders Mur Murs the Moors Murders series. In today's episode, we will be covering Myra Hindley's very interesting and busy time in prison, her multiple relationships, and her multiple brushes with freedom. Like I said in the last episode, Ian Brady settled into an accepted prison life and routine, never appealing or apologising for what he did. But Myra was quite the opposite. Myra was eager, obsessed. She had to get out. In what prisoners apparently call gate fever. Myra was told she must serve a minimum of 25 years before being even considered for parole. Immediately after her life conviction, Myra lodged an unsuccessful appeal. Get that out of here. You're staying in. Ian and Myra continued their relationship for actually quite a few years. When they were incarcerated, maybe they thought they would get out. Now more of a pen pal relationship, Myra's sister Maureen smuggled the letters to Ian. Like, I don't understand. Why would you encourage that relationship until in 1971 when Myra broke it off with Ian. As they did continue to correspond for a while after that, I think it was like an amicable split. See, Myra had fallen in love again with one of her prison wardens, ex-nun Patricia Carnes. In 1970, Patricia was 26 and Myra was 28 both being of similar age and both from the same area of Manchester. In North London's Holloway Prison, staff were, of course, forbidden from getting personally involved with inmates for security reasons. But lesbian relationships were commonplace in Holloway. How did they meet? Well, Myra spotted Patricia crossing the prison courtyard to start her shift. Something about Patricia caught Myra's eye. Who's that? She asked her friend. She looks nice. Later, Patricia was asked to escort Myra and other inmates to the prison library. Here, the two got acquainted. Patricia was instantly smitten with the calm and personable Myra Hindley. (laughs) And Myra wasted no time in her advances. One day, Patricia was sent to Myra's cell to tell her to get out of bed. When Patricia entered, Myra was laying on the bed, completely naked, moisturising herself. Myra stared into Patricia's eyes and continued to moisturise. Yuck. From then on, the two started passing notes and gifts through an illiterate Violet, a trusted inmate who walked about freely, cleaning and making cups of tea for officers. Myra and Patricia bonded over regular routine games of ping pong and 70s US pop duo The Carpenters. One night, Myra heard a tap on her cell door and found a rosebud placed in her spy hole. On the other side of the door was Patricia. I love you, Myra whispered. 
I love you too, Patricia replied. It's hopeless, but I can't help it. Uh. The romance, the romance soon became common knowledge in the prison. When senior staff found out, Patricia called it fabricated nonsense. And a poor Violet was sent to solitary for her lies. Poor Violet. She couldn't even read the notes. Like, what the... Patricia is such a bitch. And the romance went on. The two would meet in the prison chapel to discuss their Catholic faith. But they whispered about much more than religion in the chapel. In 1971, Myra asked Governor Dorothy Wing to add a new name to the list of people like allowed to write to Myra. A cousin from Manchester called Glenis. The pair were quickly pen pals exchanging around 125 letters over the next two years. But Myra doesn't have a cousin Glenis. It was Patricia Carnes, of course. And Patricia chose the most distasteful surname. She called herself Glenis Moores. How disgusting is this bitch? To make what she what Myra was sentenced there for into some kind of trivial like little wink joke. <clears throat> Over the next few years, Myra successfully petitioned to have her, like, Category A prisoner, like a dangerous prisoner, reduced down to a Category B. She was now seen as less dangerous and a prisoner on the road of reform. The governor of the prison, Dorothy Wing, took notice of Myra's apparent hard work and rediscovery and redevotion of her Catholic faith. And apparently Myra spent time learning French and Dutch. Dorothy believed Myra had changed for the better. In 1972, Dorothy had an unofficial policy of slowly reinducing her charges to the outside world when she felt they were ready. Dorothy told colleagues there is little likelihood that Myra is going to attempt to escape then took Myra for a walk on North London's Hampstead Heath, which I think is this park. I'm not too sure. Well, the press got wind of this unofficial excursion and the shit hit the fan. Now, it doesn't seem like these like unofficial walkabouts were like approved by the government or judges or I don't know who's in charge like I don't know who's in charge of that but it doesn't sound like they were approved or maybe Dorothy does have the control like she's head of the prison like maybe she can just do that but anyway the walk caused such an uproar from the public the media and the victims families spoke of the distaste that Dorothy was forced to resign Despite ruining her career, Dorothy remained fond of Myra and defended her, saying that Myra was a changed woman. Hmm. Oh, Dorothy, you're going to eat your words. When Myra was not granted parole, it became plainly obvious. It became plainly obvious to her that she was never going to be released from prison. So she persuaded girlfriend Patricia to break her out of jail. And the pair could run away into sunny Brazil. 
which is one of the few countries that would not automatically extradite them back to the UK. Patricia agreed and she became like excited. She said, we could go there and do some missionary work. Brazil's already a Catholic country. So anyway, it's like something from Prison Break. In September 1973, Patricia enlisted the help of another young inmate, Maxine Croft, who was serving time for forging five-pound bank notes. Maxine had been recently transferred from another prison for attempting her own escape by jumping over the prison wall. Myra and Patricia thought that Maxine, with her past experiences and talent for forging five-pound notes, she might be useful for the little plan that they had cooked up. Maxine was on board and the three plotted their escape. There were talks on a rumoured secret back door, but it couldn't be found. Perhaps climbing through the chapel loft and onto the roof? Uh, But they would definitely be seen. Maxine joked they would have to jump the 18-foot perimeter wall. Several women had escaped over the 18-foot wall, but were almost always found at the bottom, writhing in agony, on the ground, having broken their bones in the jump. Ah, and oddly, this is what the three like landed on. This is what they decided to do. The plan was, at 9pm, after the guards had done their rounds, Myra and Maxine would let themselves out of their cells, out through the dining hall, then the building, climb over the 18-foot wall and jump down into Patricia's arms, giving them plenty of time to drive to Heathrow Airport and catch a night flight to Brazil, all before the prisoners would be spotted missing. Maxine laughed at the whole idea, but Patricia and Myra were deadly serious. Myra was on the ball. First, Myra somehow managed to change her surname from Hindley to Spencer. Next, she needed a new fake passport. Patricia bought a new camera and smuggled it in for Maxine to take photos of Myra. Maxine took a whole roll of pictures, but the developed film came out blank. Smarty Pants had forgotten to take off the lens. Womp womp. The women waited a week, took off the lens and took more pictures. And to wit to woo, Maya had herself a wee photo shoot with the rest of the roll. Apparently, she put on heavy makeup to hide her pasty prison skin. And Patricia was more than happy to keep these photos for herself. Gross. Gross. But apparently she did eventually sell these photos and the story to the papers. The next and trippiest step? The trippiest step? The trickiest. The next and trickiest step. Copying the keys. To avoid detection, Patricia secretly used her colleagues' keys for the moulds. Patricia smuggled in bars of girly pink flowery beauty soaps. Just girly things. This soap didn't work, so they moved on to modelling plaster. Patricia smuggled it in and the women were successful in moulding the key shapes in PG tips boxes. Maxine contacted her dodgy geezer scrap dealer friend 
to get him to make the metal moulds. So Patricia put everything in a big box and posted the plaster moulds and the soap moulds as well as instructions on how to make a key. Unbeknownst to Maxine, her dodgy friend was also a well-known grass who was best friends with a senior London cop. Ultimately, the box of key impressions landed in the police station and the police landed in Holloway Prison. They confronted Maxine and accused her of assisting the Holloway IRA inmates for escaping. Maxine panicked. She didn't want terrorism slapped on to her sentence. She said, it's not for the IRA, it's for Myra Hindley. The jig was up. Myra, Patricia and Maxine were reunited at the dock at the Old Bailey in 1974 on April Fool's Day. (laughs) As the fools stood there for sentencing, Myra and Patricia held hands and locked eyes. When the dock officer noticed that they were holding hands, he karate chopped them apart. Myra Hindley was given an additional year on her life sentence and Maxine was given 18 months. And prison officer ex-nun Patricia was imprisoned for six years and the incarcerated women were separated. Later, Myra would say that she felt there was really no alternative to an otherwise almost unendurable situation. Patricia said that she had tried to be a source of consolation and encouragement to Myra and echoed Myra's sentiment saying, Being Myra Hindley is penance enough without the added rigours of long years in prison. Oh dear God, Don't you see that Myra has manipulated you and ruined your life? Friends of Patricia said that they had tried to talk her out of this relationship and everybody basically agreed that had the women escaped, Myra would have dropped Patricia like a hot potato. After this, Myra was transferred to Durham Prison where she befriended a fellow notorious serial killer, Rose West who, with her husband, Fred West, murdered nine young women and her own stepdaughter. Myra Hindley, pictured here in 1980, is it just me or does she look younger than that photo of her blonde? She looks younger here. Myra and Rose were said to have quickly become close. Romantically close. According to Rose West's ex-lawyer, the pair hooked up shortly after... Rose was admitted into jail. Apparently, there was a romantic encounter in the H wing, the hospital wing. Rose, as a new inmate, was there to be assessed. And Myra had, like, fallen over or something. And it wasn't their last romantic encounter. The relationship was casual, but Rose was quite taken with Myra, impressed by her knowledge, capability and that she had studied various courses on Open University. Prison officers referred to them as the gruesome twosome. But after just a few months, the relationship soured. Rose reportedly said, You have to watch Hindley, mind. She is very manipulative. You don't realise it, but she gets you doing stuff for her. Oh, she's clever, all right. She's flipping dangerous, that one. She ain't going to take me for a cunt again. 
Soon, the two became sworn enemies and rivals, becoming queen bees of their own little hives and fighting over who was the most famous. I think you mean infamous? Myra can stand that some young buck, some new flavour of the month was stealing her crown. But personally, I would think that Myra is more infamous. That frazzled peroxide bleach bob and her lumpy red lipstick. I mean, like, it's nearly, dare I say, iconic. Like, it's a iconic photo. Like, and it's been replicated by artists, like people. It just, it sears into your head, your mind. I think she's a bit more famous. Now, back in January in 1985, the Home Secretary increased Myra's sentence from 25 years to 30 years. By that time, Myra had claimed to be a reformed Catholic and she had many supporters campaigning for her right to appeal and or get paroled or get released. Amid strong media interest when Myra returned to the Moors in 1987, Catholic convert Lord Longford, who the media dubbed a loony do-gooder, he pleaded for her release, pointing to her newfound goodness. Supporter David Astor sent pocket money to Myra in jail and paid for her lawyers. His argument is better, I think. He argued that Myra Hindley's situation had changed from rightful punishment for heinous crimes to wrongful imprisonment by popular demand. David Astor said that only judges should decide on how long a person remains in prison, not politicians and not popular opinion, which of course is swayed by the media. And I have to say, I agree with this argument. However, for everyone campaigning for Myra's release, there was somebody else campaigning for her to remain in jail. Leslie Ann Downey's mother, Anne Downey, who remarried to West, was at the centre of a campaign to ensure Myra Hindley was never released from prison. She regularly gave television and newspaper interviews whenever Myra's release was rumoured. And in 1990, Anne and Winnie's campaigning worked. A different Home Secretary imposed a whole life tariff on Myra Hindley. These politicians just sort of keep topping each other, don't they? In 1996, the parole board recommended that Myra be moved to an open prison, which is when you like live in like a facility that's more free and open. You can come and go and have a job and friends and stuff. Uh, but there's like a curfew type thing. Yeah, you get it, yeah. And quite surprisingly, Myra rejected the offer. I think probably because Myra knew that if she was in the public, she would be spotted and probably killed. She is one of the most hated women in England during this time. Maybe ever. In early 1998, Myra was moved to a medium security prison. While there, she was diagnosed with angina and hospitalised after suffering a brain aneurysm. Also while there, weirdly enough, Myra made three separate appeals against her life tariff. 
claiming she was a reformed woman and no longer a danger to society. But each appeal was rejected. I don't understand why she wouldn't go for the open prison thing and then apply for parole. I don't understand. Am I missing something? Like literally in my research, like have I skipped? Have I skipped something? Why would... Now, in 2002, something like quite big happened. I love like all this law stuff. Like I find it interesting. Maybe you'll think it's boring. Another life sentence prisoner challenged the Home Secretary's... Secretary's... Power to set prisoner minimum terms, arguing that this goes against the EU human rights. This was already the law in Scotland and Northern Ireland. And I think this is fair. Politicians shouldn't get to use criminals as a platform or like a puppet. I know these people are horrible people, but they're still people. The prisoners, I mean, not the politicians. Well, maybe... (laughs) Myra Hindley and hundreds of other prisoners whose sentences had been upped by politicians, their release was imminent. They could be released. Myra has already served her initial sentence of 25 years. At this point in 2002, she is 60, so she's actually served about 36 years. So plans by her supporters were like put into motion for her to be released and receive a new identity. Those who did not want Myra released scrambled to find something that could keep her in prison for longer. And I know what you're thinking, give her sentences for the murders of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett. But according to the government lawyers, a decision made 15 years ago, around the time that Myra returned to the Moors, meant that trying her again would be an abuse of process. It seemed they had nothing. There was nothing, no reason to keep Myra locked up in prison anymore. On the 25th of November 2002, the law lords agreed that judges, not politicians, should decide how long a criminal spends behind bars. The ruling came into law. Just 10 days after the death of Myra Hindley. On the 15th of November 2002, Myra Hindley, aged 60 and a chain smoker, died from bronchial pneumonia. At the funeral, the media stood behind steel barriers, but none of the Hindley relatives were among the 8 to 10 people who attended a short service at Cambridge crematorium. Myra did have some deathbed confession letters, but from what I read online, they're like total bullshit, just her trying to exonerate herself again and this video is long enough. More than 35 years after the murders, more than a whole generation has passed and reportedly 20 local undertakers refused to handle her cremation. Four months later, Myra's ashes were scattered by her ex-partner, Patricia Carnes. Patricia scattered the ashes less than 10 miles from Saddleworth Moor. What the hell, Patricia? What is that? Are you, like, you're the worst nun ever? What a dick. Apparently, the victim's families were not impressed with Patricia. Also, Patricia has changed her name. Her name's not Patricia anymore. And finally, we are finished the wild 
crazy, bumpy, twisty road of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, the Moore's murders. The Moore's murderers. Moore's murders. Moore's. What is your opinions of Myra Hindley? Do you think she was given more time than she deserved? I would love to know what other people think about this. Obviously, we don't like her, but it's the subject is it's like a philosophical argument, eh? And a big thank you to my Patreon supporters. Thank you, Renee, Stephanie, Emer, Justin, Vicky, Deborah, Jem, Toya, Laura, Jason and Terry, Sydney, Karen, Liana, Sarah, Angelina, Lou Marie. Sarah G, Kirsty B, Francesca, Sean. If you want to become a Patreon and support the channel, there is now a one-point Patreon tier where you will have access to exclusive episodes not to be released for non-patrons, I guess. Um, yeah. Fuck Myra Hindley. Slam. My eye is twitching. <laughs>